Names are significant. A person's name marks them out. Your name marks you out as a unique individual. When you call someone by their name, you know them at a deeper level than that guy on the street or that girl who works behind the deli at the local grocery store. It means a lot to people when you remember their name. That's where we start when we want to get to know somebody. If you want to know someone, you have to find out their name. You say, hi, my name is Matt. Uh, what, what's your name? It's nice to meet you. That's kind of 101 for our greetings. Because to know their name is to know something about them. Now in our culture and in our day, uh, names perhaps have less meaning than they used to. And so uh, we don't necessarily attach a specific meaning to uh, when somebody says, hey, I'm, I'm John or whatever. We do that a little more with last names because we associate that with the family, right? Your last name um, indicates you're, 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 you're different than every other John. You have a particular heritage. But names, names are significant. We recognize that in just day-to-day -day life. I want to suggest to you something this morning. If you want to know Christ, you need to know His name. You need to know who He is. In our text this morning, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, describes a, a child, a promised child, who would be born to us, a son is given. Describes for us that the government will be upon his shoulder. He's going to have this position of authority and power and rule. And it is then in our verse that we are told his name. The name of the promised Messiah. His name shall be called. And we're given four titles. We might expect, you know, one name, right? But we're given four titles that describe what the child will be known for. Who is he? In a few words, in these four titles is, is a wonder and a treasure that reveals to us the Messiah. The one that the angel said, you shall call his name Jesus. Luke 1, 31. This is who Jesus is. And as we study 
these titles today, I want you to understand something. I want you to think about something. You and I must reckon with the person of Jesus Christ. We can accept Him as He is. We can accept Him for who He is. And the Bible tells us that we will experience the, the joy and the peace that comes with His favor. He will be to you a refuge. Solomon said in the Proverbs, in Proverbs 18, verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. And he's not just talking about the name of the Lord as if you could say it out loud and that's a magic formula. He's talking about who the Lord is. If you put your trust in the Lord, we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will be a refuge. Another thing we could do is we could ignore him or outright reject him. And the scripture describes the terrible absence of his favor. Eternal punishment. A path that leads to destruction. And this isn't a joke. This is a matter of eternal significance. So as we think about the name of Jesus, as we think about who He is, it's important for us to reflect on how we think of Him, what we believe, what we acknowledge about Him. And I hope that as you believe in Him, I know that you will come to see something more of His goodness, of how worthy He is, How blessed it is to know Him. But if you want to know Jesus, you must know Him as He is. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at what the Scripture says about Him. And as we come to know Him, we acknowledge Him as the Scriptures acknowledge Him. And our life becomes... A witness of this God, our Savior, and our lives are kept safe by this God, our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and we're going to be looking at the second half of the verse, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The first phrase here is His name shall be called. I 
Now remember, we're talking about this child who's going to be born, who's going to have the government on his shoulder, so he's going to rule. And before we're told, what's he going to do? What is his reign going to look like? We're told these four names that describe to us who he is. We're told his name shall be called. Now that phrase tells us at least two things. It tells us first of all that the child Isaiah prophesies about is worthy of these names. These titles can rightfully be called his. He embodies them. So they're not accidental or unimportant titles. They're not something to be read and sort of assented to, check mark, and move on. This is who he is. And we need to see that. And this is God revealing before the child is even born who he is. In his, in his character, in the way that he lives, and in his very nature, the very essence of Jesus, the very essence of the promised Messiah is given here. And, and out of that, then, we learn a second point, that this is how the child ought to be and will be known. This is how the child ought to be and will be known. You see, if, if the child is wor truly worthy of these titles, they are his. This is who he is. That is how we ought to acknowledge him. You can't get around saying, well, is he or isn't he mighty God? Is he or isn't, isn't he a, the, like a, a father? Who is everlasting. This is how the child is to be known. This is how God reveals him by his prophet Isaiah. But it's more than a, a should. Because we're told his name shall be called. This is a declaration, a prophetic foretelling that this will be so. This will happen just as the child will be, as surely as the child will be born. He will be known by these names. Those who are truly the people of God throughout the ages will acknowledge his son by these titles. How does an amazing truth. This is a certainty in the plan of God. And what a joy Today, for us to enter into that worship of the Son by acknowledging Him as He is to be known. To say that He is worthy to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. The Son of God is worthy to be called and He will be called. I pray by each one of us in our hearts 
and with our lips that we will be able to say these things. We're going to look first at the title, Wonderful Counselor. Now, some older translations separated one wonderful and counselor. Um, so you might see that in, uh, in your uh, translation, perhaps. But um, most translations and most people recognize that that was an unnecessary separation between those two. Um, we have four titles with two parts. And so it doesn't really make sense to sort of grammatically separate the first one. It could be read that way, but it seems less likely. And so the term wonderful is describing this counselor and all in the wisdom that he offers is described as wonderful or marvelous. You could just um, render the name a wonder of a counselor or marvelous in wisdom. The word translated wonderful is, is used to describe the mighty miracles God performed. He works wonders. Miracles like the dividing of the Red Sea and providing for the, the people of Israel in the wilderness so many times. These acts that are acts of God, divine acts. Not something that man can replicate or produce. Another time that this word is used is when the angel of the Lord uses it in Judges chapter 13, verse 18. The angel of the Lord appears to Manoah and his wife and uh, foretells the birth of Samson. And, uh, and they ask his name, and this is what he says. He says his name is a wonder to man. It's too incomprehensible, some translations translate it there. This is something too amazing to understand, the angel of the Lord says. So when this title is given to the child, we're not just talking about someone with some good sense here. He's got a good head on his shoulders, he'll do all right, eh? We're not just talking even about sort of a genius intellect. He's going to be really good at math, like Einstein or something. I'm talking of the kind of wisdom that's one of a kind. Kind of wisdom that is beyond that of mankind. This is, this is the one greater than Solomon. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 42, the one greater than Solomon is here. That, that, that means somebody who's a wiser counselor than Solomon. And he might have been veiled about how he spoke. The people understood who he was referring to when he said that. He himself is that one greater, wiser than Solomon. This is also the same wording that's used to describe the Lord God. 
who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. Isaiah 28, 29. The Son of God is a king who doesn't need other counselors. Does he involve others in his kingdom? Yes. But he's the wonderful counselor. In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is a great exalted high title to be given to this child. It alerts us to the fact that this child is more than any any man, any ruler ever before. Christ's people proclaim, first of all, that He is marvelous in wisdom. He is the Counselor. And He is a wonder. He's one of a kind in His wisdom. Secondly, that this King is the mighty God. That is our second title. Immediately, the title makes clear to us that he will be mighty or strong. But he will not be mighty like the great heroes of old. He will be greater for he is mighty God. El, which is the Hebrew word for God in the singular, is Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. And so we read in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. So apparently I wrote, uh, wrote it down wrong. But the reference there, which I'll find for you later, makes clear to us that El, God, is Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. They're one and the same. And this is the same Yahweh who declares in Isaiah 43, verse 10. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. And also he says, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So this title is nothing less than a declaration the child would be the living and true God. Not just a mighty hero. Some people say that El Gibor should be translated that way. But this is a title, and that's why I brought, I'm trying to bring up these references that very clearly is equated only with God. Only Yahweh, the true and living God, can be said to be El Gibor, mighty God. So here we're, we're given the identity of the Son. That He is not 
a lesser God, that he's not a created being, but the one true eternal God. So when Isaiah speaks of El, he always refers to God as distinct from man. For example, we read in Isaiah 31 verse 3, the Egyptians are men and not God. There is a distinction made in in not only this scripture, but throughout the word of God between the creator and the created. And it's not a truth that we, uh, many people want to hear. They don't like that distinction. Because we would like to be, uh, to raise ourselves up to that same level. Much like the people that were building the uh, tower in the city of Babel wanted to build a tower that could reach to the heavens. But that distinction will never be broken because the creator or the created will never become the uncreated creator. We who are made will never become the maker of ourselves. We do make things in imitation of our God. We make wonderful things with the things that he's given us. But all of that comes from the creator. We need to acknowledge that. Miracle of miracles here. The mighty God who made all things became a man that he might deliver his people from their bondage to sin and death. Let's not pass over that. We're being told here that the mighty God will be born as a child. That he will do this. That he might bring about Peace and salvation for his people. This is the mighty God who parted the waters of the sea for his people to pass through and who caused the rock to burst asunder and gave his people water in the desert. Who became a man. And was struck down for the deliverance of his own people. The mighty God was pierced. Isaiah 53 verse 5. For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement. That brought us peace. And with his wounds. We are healed. As humanity, this is our only hope. That God in Christ came to save sinners. And so we proclaim that Christ, the Son of God, is marvelous in wisdom. That He is mighty God. And third, that He is everlasting Father. 
First, let's look at the word father for a moment. Father was a common figure of speech used for kings and rulers. They were seen as the father figure of the nation. They were the ones who ultimately provided protection and care. Now, a wicked king might abuse and neglect his people. But a good king would care for his people as though they were beloved children. And they would call him father. So the son of God is characterized by fatherly care for his people. For he is one with God the father. This is a king who will care so deeply for his children. The New Testament bears witness he will die to make his enemies his children. This is the one who says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. John 6, 37. Whoever has faith in him might receive adoption. It's not talking about something that's earned or deserved, but it's given as a gift. And the father-like care of Christ, this is wonderful to me. What is the word that is used to describe that care? Everlasting or eternal. You see, this is a care that doesn't run out, it doesn't run away. Earthly fathers come and go all the time, and they're more or less worthy of being called a good father. But I will never leave you or forsake you, says the Lord. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Eternally, he is a father to his people. Every day, he guards his people and supplies their needs. And we call him Father. We call him Savior. There is a last title, a fourth that is given to the Son of God, and that is Prince of Peace. By the title Prince, we learn he will be one who rules. And by the second part of peace, we learn he will be born to bring about an eternal kingdom of peace. His mission is not a temporary reprieve, but a complete end to all evil. And like it or not, the Bible plainly teaches the only way for peace to reign upon the earth is for the sin within our hearts to be dealt with. Christ came then to bring about peace between God and man. And he made peace, Colossians chapter 1 verse 20 says, by the blood of his cross. He died a bloody, unjust, violent death so that you... Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. You who were dead in your law-breaking and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our law-breaking, 
by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He paid the debt that stood against us for our sin so that we, through faith in him, might be declared righteous, forgiven completely. As Isaiah prophesied, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Isaiah 53, verse 5. That had to happen. For the justice of God to be satisfied and for peace to be brought about in the hearts of the people of God. And so therefore, since we have been justified, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5 verse 1. That is a, a legal declaration. Those who trust in Christ are declared righteous though we had a, a whole record against us. But not only is that that record canceled, that set aright, but we are given peace with God. That is, reconciliation has taken place. So that a relationship can be had between God and man. And this is through our Lord Jesus Christ and through Him alone. It is from the Prince of Peace that a wellspring of, of peace and confidence and joy flows up in the hearts of his people so that we can have confidence in the most difficult of circumstances because death and hell and all the powers of evil and the sin that we struggle with none of that can defeat the kingdom of the prince of peace isaiah chapter 9 verse 7 gives us a glimpse into this kingdom and describes it for us. It's a kingdom that will increase. It will grow and grow. And it will be forever. It will never end. The peace that Christ promises. Is not as the world gives. John 14.27 It doesn't fade like the things of this world. And it doesn't disappear when troubles arise. Because of one fact. Jesus says in John 16, take heart, I have overcome the world. He overcame and brought peace by the blood of his cross and by rising again so that as we read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, the rulers and authorities are put to open shame. He's triumphed over them. He's coming again to set all things right. To bring about peace and justice on this, on this earth. But if we would have peace, if you would have peace now, 
and in the ages to come. To Him you must go. To Him we must go. The prophet Isaiah talks about peace later on. And in chapter 48, verse 22, and in chapter 57, verse 21, he says very plainly, there is no peace for the wicked. There is none. It's not going to go well for those that continue to reject the Son and His rule and His ways. But the Gospel, the good news, is that He Himself, Ephesians 2.14, is our peace. That is to say that in His very person and in His work, what He did on that cross, those who believe in Him are guaranteed a peace. We're given peace to walk through the troubles of this life because we know what is on the other side. And we're promised that though there are troubles now, the peace that is to come will never end. It won't fade away. And that is because of Jesus Christ. So we go to Him. We go to Him every Christmas. Every day. I wanted to return really quickly to the thought I began with. If you want to know Jesus, you must know His name. You must know who He is. And acknowledge Him. Believe in Him. You know, we don't get to make an image of Christ after our liking or pick and choose sort of which parts of Jesus we like. That would be worshiping ultimately a God of our own making, a, an idol, a false image of Christ. Perhaps due to ignorance, but more often due to our unwillingness to accept Christ for who He is. And we need to be on guard against that. That we have in our hearts and in our minds a view of Christ that, that He is all of these things. That He is the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, that He is everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That means He's the one to whom we go for counsel. He's the one that we can trust in whatever's going on in our lives because He has it figured out. That means that He is strong enough to handle any trouble, any trial, that He is so strong that He could destroy the power of sin and death. And His care for us is a care that doesn't end. It does not run out. For He is the Prince of Peace. He has purchased peace by His own death on a cross. Oh, there's so much comfort and joy in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
He's a refuge to those who call upon His name. God has declared the identity of His Son. To paraphrase Isaiah 9, verse 6, He shall be called marvelous in all His counsel. God Almighty, everlasting in care, Lord of peace. He is God. He is Lord. He is our counselor. He is our caregiver. Is this the Jesus that you know and love and speak about? This is who he is. This is one that we can trust every day of our lives. And we have a choice, of course. Whenever we come and encounter the Word of God, when we encounter the name of Jesus, whether that's in a sermon or what we're, when we're reading the Bible, we can kind of go on our merry way sometimes and not really give thought to the Son of God. Kind of uh, ignore it sometimes, maybe because we're familiar with the truth. Or we can acknowledge Him as worthy of these names. We can worship Him. Praise Him. See, we can find another refuge that will crumble one day. We can try and build a big tower for ourselves. Or we can take refuge in the unshakable name of the Son of God. If you want to know Jesus, you must know His name. And those who know His name worship Him as worthy to be called. Let's say it together. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Believe in Him this Christmas. Hello. Uh, this is Pastor Matt, just giving a bit of an edit, I had um, mixed up the scriptures on um, when I was typing out my message, and uh, I just wanted to clarify and read to you the scripture that I had intended to in my message. The scripture was Isaiah chapter 10, I had been looking earlier on in the passage, but it was verses 20 and 21. And this passage helps us to understand that the phrase El Gibor, or Mighty God, that is given to the Messiah is, is not merely an exalted title about being a mighty hero or a great warrior or anything like that. But it truly is attributing to him the very nature of God, the one true God, Yahweh. We'll see that as we read these two verses. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, 
but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. So we have here Assyria is coming. God is going to judge Assyria. And um, he used them to punish the northern tribes of Israel. But he is going to now remove Assyria, destroy them. And he says, in that day, the remnant will return. And they're not going to lean on the one who struck them. They're not going to trust in Assyria. But they're going to lean on the Lord, that is Yahweh, God himself, who is also called the Holy One of Israel. And it is said that they will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. And so it's not going to be a sham this time. They're going to lean on the Lord and trust Him. Verse 21 says, A remnant will return, repeating the same theme, the same idea. The remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. And so we have here a parallel in the same breath, the reference to leaning on Yahweh and returning to the mighty God. One and the same. So this term, mighty God, that was used a chapter earlier and is given as a name to the Messiah tells us that he indeed is Yahweh, the mighty God. This is an amazing declaration of the glory of the Son of God. And I don't want us to miss that. So I apologize for not having it right earlier on. But I have that as an addition at the end of this uh, message. God bless you all.